this morning, uh, I'm going to start out uh, with a little food for thought. This is a quote by poet Rita Dove. We haven't had enough poetry at NCS, and she writes, If only the sun-drenched celebrities are being noticed and worshipped, then our children are going to have, have a tough time seeing value in the shadows where the thinkers, probers, and scientists are who are keeping society together. Right? So we have a thinker and a prober with us this morning uh, who, who loves to talk about uh, community uh, and, and meaning in life. And I would, I would think if you, if you sum up what, uh, what guys care about most, it's like, did our life, does our life have significance? Does it have meaning? As we get to the uh, end of our days and we sit in our rocking chairs and can't do much else, what can we do? Well, we can still love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And like Lyle was telling this morning, he can sit there and pray. Um, and I'm on that prayer list, and I thank you for that. But we're looking for, we're looking for meaning uh, in our life, and we find that in Christian community. We find that um, not not just in what we achieve in life, although there's some meaning that we derive from that, but we, we derive meaning from who we are, who we have become, who we are becoming. And we have such a poor view often of ourselves in respect of that. We see other people and we compare ourselves to other people and we wind up um, really discrediting the beauty of who God has made us, who God has made you to be. Anyway, I've appreciated uh, Lee Camp. Um, his father, uh, Jim, is that right? His father, Jim Camp, uh, was not able to be with us this morning. He's uh, aging as uh, I guess all of us are. But we find, my wife and I find him walking frequently at Radnor Lake. And uh, I didn't, we, we, would, we would wave at this old guy walking down the road and, uh, and, and on the path and, and finally stopped him and said, what is your name? <clears throat> he said, I'm Jim Camp. I go, are you related to that Lee Camp guy? I said, yeah, I'm his dad. So we keep checking up on Lee uh, around, the, around Radnor Lake. Anyway, um, prober thinker, Lee Camp, welcome and thank you for being here. Would you give him a big welcome? Good morning. Glad to be with you all. Wes, thanks for the invitation. Come share. Good breakfast on a beautiful summer morning here in Tennessee. So I, I'm a college professor from a day job, and I'm in the field of ethics. And traditionally, ethics asked a better question than it's asked for the last 350 years. The last 350 years, generally, ethics has asked, the field of ethics has asked the question, just tell us what are the right and wrong things to do. Whereas the discipline of ethics intellectually, philosophically, going back to the Greeks at least, and then into the biblical tradition, uh, or prior to the Greeks with the Jews, and then into the New Testament tradition, the Christian tradition, asked a different question. Uh, and that was, what's the purpose of life? What does it mean to live a good life? What's the nature of a good life? What kind of life is a life worth living? That, that question is one way I really like to put it. What kind of life is a life worth living? 
And so I get to spend my days thinking about that question and grappling with that question. And it's a beautiful calling that I'm grateful to have gotten to receive. It's also a haunting question. And it's haunting to see the ways in which some people have grappled with that question insufficiently. One of my favorite examples about that is a story I learned years ago, true, true story, about an architect in Europe. He was very good at what he did, very good architect, and he was quickly seen in his circles as someone who was an up-and-comer, who could pull stuff off, who was not just good at design but good at administration. And if I had my, had my slide deck, I could show you some incredible buildings that he designed in Europe, some incredible facilities that he designed, and then the way in which he began to be given the call to design, redesign one of the grandest cities in Europe. Incredible success story. And it turns out that not only was he a good architect, he apparently was a really good guy. He was a good family man, had, I don't know, four, five, six kids. A beautiful picture I love of him in a convertible with three of the kids in the car. Everybody's happy. And he apparently was faithful to his wife, just a good moral guy, great professional. And turns out, though, that the key element I haven't told you yet is that he was not just anybody's architect. He was Hitler's architect, and his name was Albert Speer. So at the end of the war, he's arrested. He's taken to the Nuremberg trials, tried for war crimes. He's convicted, and he's sent to prison. And in prison, he has opportunity to write a memoir and to think about the question, how is it that I have ended up where I have ended up? How have I become the person that I have become? And as he's grappling with that question, he comes to a conclusion that I think a number of people have found offensive because it doesn't seem to be dramatic enough. It doesn't seem to be, oh, well, see, that's, that's how you explain this horror. Because his conclusion was that his fundamental moral failing that led him to becoming a hated war criminal who some people say, as minister of armaments, extended the length of the war perhaps by a year he says his fundamental moral failing is this. I wanted, above all, he said, to be a good architect. I don't know how that strikes you, but it's worth pondering for a moment. Because one of the things that you see in somebody like Albert Speer is highlighting the importance of what the philosophers and the theologians, some theologians call the master narrative. That is, what is the master story by which we live our lives? We all have various stories or roles that we have to fulfill in our lives, right? Uh, we have whatever 
profession, career that we're working on, that's a role and that's a story of a community of people that we have to work with and work in and through. We have um, stories as, as sons, we have stories as many of us as husbands, we have stories many of us as fathers, we have stories as members of our churches, members of our communities. These all have various stories that are attached with that identity that goes with that role, right? So the question of a master narrative is, when push comes to shove, which one trumps all the others? Which is the one that all the other stories, all the other roles get submitted to or given account to? That's what's meant by a master narrative. And here Fleer is, uh, Spear is saying, I wanted above all to be a good architect. And so it raises for us this question of, am I living according to a big enough true enough story? Am I living according to a big enough, true enough story? One of the things that's fascinating about the story of Albert Speer is that as two theologians alike have written an essay about his story, they point to the fact that Speer was a, a man who, as a good person to work with, uh, didn't gossip. He didn't talk a lot about stuff going on. He wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about other people. And moreover, at the workplace, he wouldn't even talk about politics. Did you hear what I just said? Even in the middle of World War II. And didn't talk about politics. And at one point, one of his friends comes to Spear and says, whatever you do, don't go to Auschwitz. And they report that Speer not only did not go to Auschwitz, he did not even ask his friend, why are you telling me not to go to Auschwitz? Now, Harawas and Burrell, who are writing this essay, suggest that this is a classic case for helping us understand the meaning of self-deception. So self-deception is a tricky thing, right? Because self-deception can't simply mean I'm consciously telling a lie to myself, right? So I could tell myself, Lee, you're a, you're a great basketball player. And I would like, no, no, I'm not. I, I, I can't manifest myself into that. I know I can't, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a good basketball player. Um, so I know I would be lying to myself. So what is self-deception? Well, Harawas and Burrell suggest looking at, at um, Spear's story that one possible definition for self-deception is this. And this one's worth chewing on all day long, but it's also a really hard one to chew on and can lead you to some places that you might not want to go because that's what self-deception does for us, right? It keeps us from going places we don't want to go. And that's crucial to their definition. They say self-deception is a policy of a refusal to give an account for some part of your life. Let me say that again and invite you to think on this, that self-deception is a policy of a refusal to give an account for some part of your life. Now, I would suggest that unless you've done a whole lot of work, you probably might have something bubble up over there that you might know what that area is in your life. 
And they're asking the question, can you have the courage to learn to lean into that space and that place and give it some light? Well, you know, when I, um, one of the things about my academic discipline is that a lot of academic disciplines, you can do this kind of ivory tower stuff and it never connect with the real world, which is you know, obviously what's meant by the critique of the ivory tower. You can, you can talk about stuff that really doesn't seem to matter to the real world. But in talking about these kinds of things, um, if they're gonna be talked about with any kind of integrity, they gotta come in contact with some sort of real world. And so for my own life, I, I, learned, I, I got to go, I was, uh, as an undergrad, I studied computer science, but somewhere along the way, I kind of yielded to some sort of sense of calling that I thought I had had since I was a boy and decided I'd go to seminary. And so I went to a really great seminary, Abilene Christian in West Texas. And then along the way in seminary, I started reading some theologians that I, I really, really liked. And so I applied to PhD programs to go study with these folks. And so I got, got into a PhD program at Notre Dame with a, uh, got into a wonderful program. And so by the time I'd done seminary and then five years of PhD work, I had learned a lot about the Christian narrative and the Christian tradition that to this day, I remain deeply grateful for and feel as if I was given a gift to get to see some things about the Christian tradition that I never knew when I was young. And I'll always be grateful for those things. But I say at the same time that there were things that I was, um, that are hard to live out. Um, did you know, for example, that in contrast, that um, one of the things that happened in Nazi Germany is that Hitler came to power uh, based upon a lot of family values of campaigning against things like pornography, of celebrating flag waving, and celebrating the glory of soil and country and family. And that on that platform, he was able to coalesce people around that platform that led to the horrors that it led to. In contrast, one of the things that I've learned many, many years ago in taking seriously the Christian tradition is that the Christian tradition from the start has insisted that it cannot be co-opted by any power or principality or nation state or community or tribe, but that it is a transnational community. Or that from the start in the first three centuries of the Christian tradition, that the early church fathers, whenever they were asked, for example, about um, whether or not Christians participate in war, they always said, that's not what we Christians do because Jesus came and taught us a different way. That's not what we do. That their kind of notions of money were very utilitarian at one level, right? There's one of the early church fathers who said, he said, look, which knife cuts better at dinner? A gold knife? or an iron knife, an iron knife. And that was kind of his basic understanding of wealth. It's God's gift to us, it's to be used. Use it, don't focus on the wrong things, use it. So there's more and more and more that we could talk about the, the compelling sort of so-called countercultural nature of the early Christian tradition that I got to learn this sort of stuff. And to this day, it, it has shaped me. Um, I, I try to live into it as my master narrative and so I found myself as a 20-something and early 30-something having been given the gift of trying to think about all these things. 
But at the same time, I, I would look at texts like Romans 6, 7, and 8. If you're, you know, I understand that we're, a lot of us Christians, maybe not all Christians in here, but, you know, that famous text out of Romans 7 where Paul says, I do the thing I do not want to do. I know what is good, and I do not do the good that I want to do, but I do the, the evil that I do not want to do. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Paul, Paul never says that our problem is that we can't think right or that we, we don't know what the right thing to do is. Here, here he's saying our, our fundamental human problem is that we know what's good and true and beautiful, but we don't do the good and true and beautiful that we want to do. We do the thing that we don't want to do. In other words, what he's saying is our problem is powerlessness, right? And so throughout that Romans 6 and 7, he uses the language of slavery. He uses the language of bondage. He uses the language of powerlessness. And so as a 20-something and an early 30-something, I'm, I'm reading this text and I'm, real, I'm realizing, yeah, this is my problem. You know, I'm powerless over lust. I'm powerless over resentment. I'm powerless over anxiety. I know all these beautiful things about the Christian tradition, but I'm powerless over all this stuff. And I would read Romans 6 and 7, and then by the time you get to Romans 8, he's got this kind of triumphant note in Romans chapter 8 of saying, see, we don't have to live that way. And I would get so ticked because it was like he would say, see, we don't have to live this way. And I, and I would read it repeatedly, and I would say, you didn't tell us how. Dude, you've described this predicament in which we find ourselves, and you say, see, we don't have to live that way. And I'm thinking, that ticks me off. Tell me more, right? And he doesn't tell us more. Um, and so for me, it was a sort of question of, well, what do I do with these realities about my life that clearly are not living fully into the narrative that I think is true about what is good and true and beautiful? And I don't know if these will be helpful for you, um, but just, just for me, just sharing for my own, own um, things that people gave me that were helpful to me. And, and one would be uh, simply learning to face my shame and to be vulnerable about my shame. I remember, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know this distinction. The, the therapist taught me this distinction between shame and guilt. You probably all know this, right? but the, I didn't know this as a 20-something. The difference between shame and guilt and that guilt is a judgment about an objective standard that we've broken an objective standard that's outside of us, right? So the rule may be X, and I know that, that there's that rule out there, and I can understand what that rule is, and guilt is saying, I did not keep X, or I did not do X, therefore I have guilt. Shame is an interior subjective state, typically, in which I'm not looking at the external standard I'm looking on a judgment upon myself as myself. So in other words, you might put it this way, that guilt says, I did a crappy thing. And shame says, I am crap. See the difference? I did a crappy thing versus I am crap. It's interesting also to note that shame and guilt may not be correlated at all. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're correlated, right? I did a crappy thing and therefore I feel like I'm crap. But if you look, for example, at victims of abuse, it notes the difference between the objective and the subjective, right? Looked at victims of abuse, and a lot of times you can have children who've been abused, 
and they will carry immense shame about something that somebody else did to them. So what the, the distinction between shame and guilt invites us to do is to say that uh, there's been lots of sociological research, social science research that's been done about shame and guilt, that shame is much more highly correlated with addiction, shame is much more highly correlated with depression, shame is much more highly correlated with violence, with bullying, whereas watch this, guilt a strong sense of guilt is inversely correlated with all of those. So in other words, what you want is a strong sense of guilt and a weaker sense of toxic shame. And you might think, well, why, why in the world? Why? Why would that work that way? Because what's happening, if I, can, if I can take seriously the notion of guilt, what I'm inviting myself to do is to say, is to continually be asking myself, what kind of person am I wanting to be? What kind of life is a life worth living? And if I can look at something that I've done and say, well, ah, that's not what I want to be. That's not what I want to do. Without shaming, humiliating, beating myself up, then I have an opportunity to grow because I've been able to identify really what it is that I don't want to be or what I want to do. I had a, a friend many years ago, he used to put it this way, I would, in my shame, I would start talking about, you know, I'd done X, Y, or Z again. And, and he would say, why don't you just turn off your ass-kicking machine? Because he could see that what I was doing by having my ass-kicking machine on was I was distracting myself from ways I could actually grow and ways I could get better. Turn off your ass-kicking machine. And instead, learn to practice vulnerability, he was telling me by just telling somebody, you know, I did this again. Um, I was, we were having a, a discussion at, at the table over there just a moment ago, and it reminded me of this line from Thomas Merton, the great Catholic writer, who once said that he thought that the, a mark of Christian maturity is um, to learn to be able to laugh at lascivious thoughts. I love that. Now, you might find that somewhat offensive at one level, right? Because right, we're supposed to be all serious when we have a lascivious thought. We're supposed to kind of shame ourselves when we have a lascivious thought. But lascivious thoughts are actually pretty funny because they're all, they're, they're all so, so often so unrealistic and silly and a lie. And Merton is kind of saying, look, you, you'll show that you're maturing a bit when you can see that lascivious thought and, and laugh about it. You know, I remember one time having this horrific lascivious thought that just kept coming to me. <laughs> and I would not dare tell you, tell you this thought in, the, in this context. But, um, but I called this friend of mine, and I told him what it was, and I felt so much shame. And, and he just started laughing, and he said, that's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. You know, and to be able to laugh and then move on. So what I'm pointing to is that um, in trying to live into another narrative, it's going to require, for me, for me what it required was trying to learn to practice vulnerability and share the things I didn't want to share. All right, so one of my, I, ha, I do have a group of guys that I get to meet with every, every um, Saturday morning. We've met together for 10 or 12 years, and we all know each other's stuff really, really well. And when something comes up again, we don't have to tell our story over again. They know it, right? We've been talking about it for a decade. And so one of my rules of thumb in that gathering is asking myself the question, what is it I do not want to talk about 
and that I, very often is precisely the thing I need to talk about. So self-deception and trying to lean into vulnerability about that. This, of course, requires what the, the moral philosophers call courage. Right? Courage is, um, to think about a definition of courage, courage is the willingness to understand, to face, to accept that I'm experiencing fear and that fear is asking myself the question, will I do the thing that I think is good to do or not? Right, so courage is not fearlessness. Fearlessness is a very dangerous thing to try to be. Right? I've had a, one kid in particular who's fearless, and it's cost us a lot of ER trips, and he would have been a lot better if he'd had a little more fear. Right? Fearlessness is not helpful. Um, and that's because one of the vices of, associated with the other side of cowardice is foolhardiness. Foolhardiness doesn't take fear seriously enough, and cowardice cowers in the face of fear. And courage is the place that says, okay, I've got fear, but I'm going to seek to do the right thing, the good thing, in the midst of the fear. And so for me, who was um, another one of my great character defects was conflict avoidance. And I, 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 was, uh, I was one of those weird ones that was not particularly conflict avoidant in my professional life, things I would write or things I would say in public. You know, I, I, I could do that. And uh, sometimes I was uh, sort of um, foolhardy and went on that side with regard to some of that stuff. But in personal relationships, I was conflict avoidant to no end. And so one of the things I began to realize in my life is uh, I was a coward in a lot of ways and learning to take seriously courage. About that same time, I realized that I could teach this great ethics class to my students, and if they didn't come out with any sort of courage, it wouldn't matter because they wouldn't be able to do the good thing or the right thing when it was required. And so I started pushing my students a lot on taking seriously courage. So in some of those early days of experimenting with this, I would give them assignments, and I would say, okay, look, what I want you to do is, you've read this book, what I want you to do is go to a coffee shop and just look for somebody that you don't know who's sitting there by themselves and walk up to them and say, hey, I'm, I've got this, my professor's giving me this awful assignment. He's asked me to sit down and tell somebody about this book I've just read, five minutes. Can I have five minutes of your time to sit down and tell you about this? And if they say yes, then sit down with them and tell them about it. And when they're done, offer to buy them another cup of coffee or a refill and move on your way. If they say no, then go find somebody else until you find someone who will say yes and you sit down five minutes tell them about the book. And then I would ramp it up through the semester so that by, by the end of the semester, I had told one of them, I said, um, um, I had told the class, come to class with a list of the three people on campus that you find most intimidating, administrator or faculty person, that you find most intimidating, that you think will disagree with you about your convictions about this issue that we're talking about. So they came to class and I said, okay, for next class period, you were to go to the person that's number one on your list for most intimidating, and you're to go to them and say, I want to tell you about something I've been thinking about and studying about, and this is what I think about it. And when they tell you what they think, you say, you're wrong. And then say, thanks, and walk away. <laughs> and of course, it was terrifying to them for good reason. And I was, um, that week, that week, I was in the YMCA in Green Hills, and um, you know, there's these placards. I hadn't been in that, that weight room to pay attention. I don't know if it's still there or not, but for a long time, there was a, a sign in the, in, the, in the locker room that said, 
cell phone use is not permitted in the locker room for obvious reasons. You know, you're a bunch of new people around. You don't want people with cameras around, right? And so cell phone use is not permitted in the locker room. And so one day I came into the locker room that, that particular week. I walked in, and there was this really strong dude uh, in the locker next to me on his cell phone. And I had just worked out, and I'd gone take my shower, and I had come out of the shower. Here he is. And that particular day, I had forgotten to take my bath towel. And all I had was one of those little hand towels that they have at the Y. And so I walk out, you know, like this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. I'm not a particularly svelte dude. And here's this very svelte, strong guy, very cut. And he's on the phone, and he's pissed, and he's cussing at the person on the other, other side of the phone line. And so he's into it with this person, and I'm sitting there like this, and I think of my poor students, and I think of what I've done to them. And I think, um, here you go, Camp. You're going to be courageous or not? And so I said, you know, he's, ah, ah, ah. I said, excuse me, sir. Excuse me. Ah, excuse me. What? And I pointed at the sign. I said, cell phone use is not permitted in the locker room. And he says, I got to go, damn it. And he closes his phone and he throws it in the locker. And then he looks at me real intimidating and he says, thank you for letting me know that. And he walked off. A couple semesters later, uh, at the end of the semester, a student came to me and she said, you know when you told us that lecture about courage? I said, yeah. Um, she said, I knew that day that I knew exactly what my thing was I needed to work on. I said, yeah, what was that? And she said, I'm terrified of heights. And she said, so I started going on hikes where I would get higher and higher and I'd go out and look over and she said, I just had to work through my fear. And she said, you know what I did this past weekend? I said, what did you do? She said, I jumped out of an airplane. And then she said, but it's not about the heights. She said, because what I discovered was that the things I had been afraid to do in my life, all of a sudden I could begin to do them, like have a hard conversation with my mother, but do things for myself that I know I should have done for myself that I had not yet done. So this is the invitation of life, right? What does it mean to live a life worth living? It can look like a lot of things, but it's asking yourself, what's the big story? What's true and good and beautiful enough? Is it, are you, are you, am I striving just to be a good architect, just to be a good professor, or something bigger, truer, more beautiful than that? And then as we ask ourselves that question, to be willing to look at the particulars of our life and to practice the vulnerability and to develop the courage that it can take to allow other people to see into our lives and to give us their wisdom, and to teach us the love of Christ such that we ourselves might live more through God's power rather than our own into the good and the true and the beautiful life to which we have been invited. Thank you. Lee, thank you very much uh, for being with us this morning. Um, sitting here thinking about something, I think it was St. Francis who said in relation to the Romans 7, 
he, he, this conundrum that we have, and he referred, started referring to his body as brother ass. You know, the affection of the brotherhood, but at the same time. Um, what he didn't tell you is that um, he was the last doctoral candidate at, at Notre Dame under uh, a third cousin of our family, John Howard Yoder. And so when we found that out, we just had this incredible connection and all of that. Um, how many of you have gone to either a token show or a No Small Endeavor, which is now called? I highly recommend uh, that, you, that you get on the website, um, No Small Endeavor. It's Lee's program that he does and he records. There's a podcast. Uh, there is a program. How, how many times a year do you do the, 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 the public gathering? Four or five times? Four or five times. And they're always phenomenal. He even sings. And he's a pretty darn good singer coming out of that Church of Christ background. Uh, but, but, the, but it's really a great evening of entertainment. And he has now uh, gotten um, national sponsors for, for this uh, radio, a national radio broadcast that's going to come off these shows and things that he does. Um, you're a real treasure in our community, and I think you just made me want to sign up for some classes at Lipscomb. Uh, brothers, thank you for gathering. Thank you for doing what you can in, in your circles to create a meaningful community of life where Jesus is the center. Go in peace.